I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi there. Y'all doing well? I hope you're hanging in. I have missed you. That's why today we have something super great for you in the feed. Recently, I had a conversation with a writer, Casey McQuiston, about their latest novel, I Kissed Shara Wheeler, which is now in stores. You probably know Casey as the author of the smash hit book, Red, White, and Royal Blue, and another smash hit book, One Last Stop. Their latest book is their first young adult novel. Honestly, it's another total win. I think you'd love it. We talked about our shared love of romance novels, how they get their work done, and all the places they've looked for romance over the last few years, while we've all still been living in this near-constant uncertainty. It was a really great talk, and I feel in love with books about love. So let's get to it. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Hello, Casey. Hi, Meredith. I'm so excited to be here. Okay, so very much congratulations. I know book releases can be very overwhelming. I have read this book. I have loved this book. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and how you came to it? Yeah, um, so I am, I kind of describe myself when like Uber drivers ask me what I do. I say I write romance and young adult novels. And then if it's a cool Uber driver, I say I write queer romance and young adult novels, which is really what I do. I write queer romantic comedies for adults and young adults. I have two books that came out in 2019 and 2021, Red, White, and Royal Blue, and One Last Stop, which are both queer adult rom-coms. And then I Kiss Shar Wheeler is my first queer rom-com for young adults. And how I came to this is... I love romance and I'm a queer person. And so I was like, why not combine these things and then make it my whole life? Not not a bad idea. Okay. Yeah. So what is it like writing for the young adult audience for the first time? It's interesting because I think the biggest changes were just thematically. I really wanted to explore themes that were more relevant to that age group. Adult books really more explore who am I and how does this person fit into the world and I think that's kind of a, a new adult quarter-life crisis feeling. And I think what teens are more experiencing right now is like for the first time grappling with the idea of like, I kind of thought I knew who I was as, you know, because you're coming out of childhood thinking like, well, I've been the same person this whole time. And you're just starting to feel out like, okay, but who am I really? And 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 how do how does that reconcile with this kid I've been all along? And so that is a big theme that I'm exploring in this book that I didn't really explore as much in my first two. 
And also just the way that characters act when they're teenagers and giving them room to be teens and not just be like posturing, I am an adult and I am going to write the cool, woke, perfect teen who never says the wrong thing and never makes the wrong choice that I wish I had been. I don't think teens find that relatable. I think it's really transparently adults trying to like rewrite our cringe past selves as like, oh, but what if I had been cool and everyone had liked me and I had never embarrassed myself? That's not realistic. And so I I wanted to write these teens who were still figuring things out, still making bad choices, uh, still caring way too much about all the wrong things because that's what being a teenager is. And I really enjoyed that because you don't have to, like I said earlier, you don't have to hold teens to the same like logical standards of adult characters and so you can do way messier things with them and that's so fun to do to have the freedom to do that so it was it was really fun it was really challenging it was a lot of like oh let's learn to extend empathy to like my annoying teenage past self let's unpack a lot of things that are left over from high school and that was really rewarding and really cathartic and really 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 fun the romance genre even to call it a genre, it is so many things. Um, why do you love it? And what does it mean to you? I mean, I think I'm a feelings person. I think first and foremost, in every area of life, I'm a feelings person. And romance is like 1000% pure high octane feelings, 24 seven straight to the gut. Love it. While you can find romance in anything, there are very few genres that will hit all of the emotional highs and lows that I really, really crave out of fiction in the same ways where it's the main focus and it is like, you know there's going to be payoff and you know it's going to end with a happy ending and you know that these people that you come to love and care about are going to come to love and care about each other. It's just intoxicating and it's so much fun. Literally, I don't think I can think of a feeling that romance is not the cure for. I think a good romance novel will make you happier when you're already happy, make you feel better when you're sad, make you feel hope again when you're heartbroken. Even if you're mad, it can give you something somewhere else to put like the intensity of your feelings, you know? And I think that it's just so hard to find that in any other kind of fiction in such a pure, just like completely beautiful, undiluted way. And it's addictive and I love it. I have long been a romance novel fan. I mean, growing up that way, right? And I think that the perception of romance novels have changed specifically, like, I'm going to give it six years, six, seven years. Maybe I'm underestimating. But where there was, like, a radical shift in how people talked about it, people talked about romance with more respect. And I think even, like, a lot of indie bookstores around where I live in Boston were suddenly like, huh, maybe we downplayed these books because of misogyny, not because... They're not good. And so I wondered, you know, when you were growing up, what your perception of romance was and and how you would define those books now. Yeah, I mean, I think the romance I was mostly exposed to growing up was mass market, supermarket, uh, paperbacks, girls on horses, guys with abs, kind of like beautiful, like oil painting covers. Um, my sister, I have an older sister who is a huge romance reader whose bookshelves I would often raid during summer vacation when nobody was monitoring my, my reading. As somebody who did get abstinence-only sex education, it was a, a very illuminating experience to read romance at like 
bodice rippers at 12 was was kind of my uh, introductory course. I was always fascinated by them and I always saw them as something I was supposed to read in secret, possibly because I was technically maybe too young to be reading them. But uh, my sister and, and anybody I know who read romance was like a very proud romance reader and had them very prominently displayed on the shelves. And I always loved romance, but I, I think like many people had this sense of like, Perhaps read it at home, perhaps maybe not as comfortable reading it on a plane or the train or something, which I think is thankfully something we have thrown to the winds now. Because like you said, I think that we've broken out of this idea that it's something to be ashamed of because, you know, sexuality when you're an AFAB person is something to be ashamed of or horniness in general is something to be... I mean, I think that... We've had a lot of evolution in, in how sex is allowed and, and desire and pleasure is allowed to be experienced and discussed by people who aren't men. And that's really, really cool. And I, and I think romance has played such a huge part of that. And the result is now I'm so proud to be a romance writer and I, I'm so proud to get to know other romance writers and, and readers too. One thing I tell people when I'm talking about romance is that it's actually really hard to to do you know there's this thought it's only this it's only that and like I think you know one of the staple things about romance novels is that people get to be happy right <laughs> which is mm -hmm. like so if you know everybody's going to be happy or that your leads are going to be happy at the end surprising someone as you get there is mm -hmm. kind of hard difficult I mean it's not like the easiest thing to pull off as a writer do you include that in your definition of of what it means to write romance that your leads have to sort of find a happiness at the end of the book. Oh, absolutely. I think that is probably the one thing that every romance writer can agree on. I think we we all have a lot of opinions on the genre, but I think the one like hard and fast rule is is as we call it in romance land in HEA, happily ever after. Very, very important component. And I think structurally it's a really important component because what's really cool about romance is having that happy ending create sort of a safety net underneath you to explore trauma and angst. And if it's fantasy or, or romantic suspense, then you've got like plot, murder, things happening. It can go to all these like weird, fun, cool, dark places. And you have that sort of safety net under view of like, no matter how many directions the story goes in, I can trust that this author is going to kind of bring it in for a gentle landing at the end and that it's safe to go into those depths with them because you know that ultimately things will be okay. Talking about young adult books, that kind of romance seems so special and it's special to write and it's special to read. Can you talk about that? Like this is a little bit different than, than what you'd written before. The kind of love comes off differently just because of age. Yeah. I mean, I think what's fun about young adult is you're in this interesting place where the stakes are much lower, you know, when you're when you're like a new adult or like a, you know, 20 something, which is the, the ages I've written before, you know, these are the first times that you're falling in love with like forever on the table. You know, at least that was my experience in my 20s. It's like all of a sudden relationships needed to, were like, there was this element of like, is it you? Like, is it going to be you? So like on the one hand, the stakes are lower when you're doing YA romance when you're a teen in love. But on the other hand, the stakes have never been higher. And that's how it feels. Like when you're a teenager 
and you're falling in love for the first time, it's like, oh, am I inventing love? Is this the first time anyone's ever been in love? Because I'm pretty sure it feels that way. Um, and that is so much fun to write. I think Shara, as a book, is probably the lowest stakes I've ever written because, you know, my first book was the world and my second book was like time and space and life and death. And this one is like, this girl's kind of a bitch at my high school, you know? And I, and I, and that was so much fun to like play around with and make that feel just as high stakes because that is how it feels when you're a teenager. And like Chloe has this part of the book where she's like, it feels like everything I'm feeling is the first time anyone's ever felt it in the history of the universe. And I'm learning what it means to feel it. And it makes me want to explode. And that is what I think being a teenager is, is just like learning what feelings mean. And it's interesting you said that because I probably didn't think about it as I read it, that the stakes felt just as high as the other books, even though that on paper, they're not really, right? But then yeah. it feels that way. And I think even like in writing an advice column, like at the Globe, like people will write in about something very simple and all the commenters will be like, this is not a big deal. But I'm like, it's happening mm -hmm. to them. <laughs> it feels like a huge deal. It's huge. And that's for adults too, right? Like if it's happening to you, it's a very big deal, even if it's just that yeah. somebody's a bitch at your high school. <laughs> I mean, every crush I had in high school felt like the end of the world. I remember being a middle schooler and like, on, like, like, like moping around on my bathroom floor listening to only one by Yellow Card because like some guy with really bad highlights liked this other girl and not me. And I was like, but he's my only one, as Yellow Card said. And like, that's what being a teenager is like, you know? Also, some of adulthood, I think. <laughs> different, yeah. Maybe not yellow card and maybe not the hair, but like different circumstances. But yes, like it, it can, yeah. you know, I think I'm constantly dealing with adults who are surprised by their own feelings because, uh -huh. you know, this idea that you're supposed to have grown out of being able to be hurt or, yeah. or being able to have feelings of longing. But, um, okay, I want to talk about the book, the new book. Um, yeah. If you were giving the pitch on this book or telling somebody about it, how would you describe this new book? So whenever I describe Shara, if they're coming from a background of like, you know, having a lot of pop culture literary references, I always say it's like book smart meets paper towns meets saved, um, which I think is a pretty concise description. But if, you know, in, in layman's terms, um, I would describe it as um, three very dissimilar classmates are each kissed by the enigmatic prom queen Shara Wheeler before she disappears on prom night. And now they are stuck with each other trying to figure out um, where she went and why. And these three people are her quarterback boyfriend, um, her next door neighbor who has a crush on her and her academic rival. And it's told from the point of view of her academic rival, Chloe. Um, and it is set in... Bible Belt, Alabama, um, and it's a great time despite all of the things that are happening in there. It is a lot of fun. For Gen X listeners, I am a Gen X person. When you first start describing Shara, this character is like the opposite of that sort of like the dream girl who everyone thinks is a dream girl despite her not doing anything. She does everything. You know, that there was a, uh, what's her name in Say Anything? Diane. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Where I was like, oh, like I, you know, that the, in the early pages of the, of the book, that's, I started, you know, picturing that kind of character. It's it's such yeah, a great, yeah. um, you do such a, a vivid job of that. I wonder Thank if there's you. pressure as someone who writes 
queer stories to like get it right for everyone. And I know when people write about you, this is often a point they bring up and how you feel about what your role is in this. Because so many people, you know, like they're looking to books they might see themselves in, but you can't write for everybody that way. I mean, I very much not only don't see myself as, but usually like when an interviewer will bring it up, I actively try to push away the idea that I am like defining anything about queerness, you know, like I know, like there's, first of all, the queer experience is like huge and broad and varied. And there's so much variability in there and different intersections. And I am speaking and writing from a very particular point of view. And I am trying my best to show, I feel like I've tried really hard to show a lot of different types of queer experiences in my books, but they are just a few. And so I'm always like trying to point backward and out, outward towards so many other writers um, who are contributing to like this wave of queer romance. But in terms of like wanting to write the queer experience, it is a bit daunting to think that when you do achieve mainstream success, sometimes a straight person will pick up your book and that might be the first real exposure that they have to a really up close look at queer love and queer intimacy and queer sex even. I do feel this pressure of like, well, I want to get this right. And I really also want to be very unapologetic about it. That's why with my adult romances, I've always had some level of like queer sex on the page. And it's always very like beautiful and consensual and emotional and, you know, intense and a big part of the relationships because that's how straight romance novels treat it. And I never wanted to give in to any type of pressure that like, oh, that queer sex is somehow less fit to print, you know? Um, So that was a big, that's a big part of it. There is also the fear of like, especially with this book, there's a lot of queer kids in conservative environments who are going to be hopefully reading this because that's who I wrote it for. And so it was really a little nerve wracking to try and walk that line of letting them feel hopefully writing something that makes them feel seen and represented, but not something that's like re-traumatizing or triggering, but also really honest and not pulling its punches about what it's like to grow up in that type of environment. And also not dismissing kids who grow up in that environment who do love where they're from and do, you know, go to church and are believers and, and, you know, wanting there to be room for all of these many different facets of queerness that exist in these specific environments, you know. Like I said, like, queerness is just so huge and so big and so beautifully multifaceted. And I'm really humbled to have the opportunity to talk about it in books. It is also so scary sometimes to to hope that I'm doing, doing it right and doing right by as many people as possible and opening up a window, at least, that can be like, hey, look, there's like five million more perspectives you might not have thought about either. Well, I know that in order to be as successful as you have with these books, you, you, you're drawing a larger community than just the community that is represented in your book, right? Which is a, mm-hmm. usually like a character, too, right? So tell me about the first book for the six people who don't have it and or, or have not seen it on a friend's shelf. Or you can you talk yeah. a little bit about it and sort of where it came from? Red, White, and Royal Blue is um, about the first son of the first American female president of the United States having a enemies to friends to lovers affair with the youngest prince of England, both of whom are completely fictional, by the way. Um, And uh, just it's about um, the way that their affair kind of 
spirals into an international incident um, and everything that follows. Um, it's very fun, in my opinion. It's a lot of jet setting and like making out at Wimbledon, and it's fun. We're going to take a quick break. More of my interview with Casey in a minute. We're back with Casey McQuiston, author of the new book, I Kissed Shara Wheeler. I know a lot of people who do follow your work are also sort of people who write. Uh, they might be people, obviously, who read. But how do you get it all done? Which I know is a complicated question where people in the back of their mind are like, oh, no, am I getting it done? But but can you yeah. talk about sort of how you go about the process of work when it's very independent work? Ooh, it's it's not easy because I also have ADHD. And so like managing myself has never come easily to me. And so I'm very lucky to say that while it is very like individual work, it's also like I have like a psychiatrist who prescribes me my meds and I have like a virtual assistant who literally sends me my schedule every week so I don't forget all of my deadlines because otherwise I would. I'm very, very lucky that, you know, three years into my career now, I've gotten to a point where I can afford to kind of build out a support system around me, um, which was not always the case at the beginning. It was a lot of uh, me sitting on the floor having mental breakdowns. Uh, and now I think um, I have I have a lot of friends who are writers and we literally have like a discord where we'll do writing sprints and just like accountability check-ins and follow up with each other and share share what we've been working on. Um, it is a balancing act of like pushing through, feeling like you can't get it all done and just like powering through it and then having days where it's like, you know what, I'm not going to get it all done and that has to be okay today, you know, and I'll catch up tomorrow. If regimented schedules help you get stuff done, then that's helpful. That's what I do a lot because otherwise it's all a mess up here. Let the record show I was gesturing to my brain and uh, not working against your brain, not trying to force yourself into productivity strategies that you, you know, read about online and think that like, well, if people can do this, I can do this. And like, if it doesn't work for your brain, it doesn't work for your brain. I don't know. Does that answer your question? No, I does. don't know how I get, I really don't know. Well, I, I really don't get it all done. <laughs> I, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this, but the, but the idea of personally knowing that you need to be isolated for as long as three weeks, being able to turn to a partner and say, like, I'll be back later. I mean, mm -hmm. that's complicated for relationships and even friendships. But are you open yeah. to talking about that? Because I think that's really interesting that I think, yeah. um, you know, sometimes, I mean, I don't have kids and I don't have any responsibilities. I look at some of these authors who have like three kids and like partners and, and I'm like, but how do you just go away? So, So do you mind talking about sort of, getting people used to what you need without expecting too much? Because that's got to be a balance. Um, you know, it's hard. <laughs> I'm very, very lucky to have a partner who's, like, incredibly supportive of my career and, like, understands not only me, but, like, writers in general, because that is, like, a hard thing to make somebody understand if they don't understand how creative people are. You know, it is... It is Something I'm still figuring out how to balance. I think I'm getting slightly better at it every day. Um, and I think my friends also, like, slowly have come to, like, feel out that rhythm with me um, and, and know that, um, oh, 
it's like, I haven't heard from Casey in three weeks. Must be revisions, you know? I'm still trying to figure out the balance between right now, the way my year is usually structured. I have like busy seasons and off seasons. And my busy seasons, I'm like a ghost. Like no one can reach me. And I'm like, uh, you know, neck deep in, in what I'm working on. And I think part of becoming you know, a full-time author and this being my job now is figuring out like, oh, I can't do that anymore. Like that's not, like that's like not a sustainable way to live. Well, speaking of this and good partners and all all of these things, um, how much does your real world influence your love stories? Like obviously you don't know the prince of whatever, but <laughs> you know, in in your real life, are you able to see things and hear things that sort of spark an idea for you? Or do you keep them very separate? Um, it's both. Like, a lot of my books are just pure fantasy. And, um, like, Jane in One Last Stop was literally me just, like, writing a dream girl. You know, just, like, if I could, if I could like, dream up, like, the personality of my, of, like, like a, a partner that would be awesome to hang out with, like, let's do Jane. Um but also, like, I think with when I was doing Red, White, and Royal Blue, a lot of the dynamic between Alex and Henry um, was, you know, Henry is somebody who's, like, grieving and, and, like, pretty depressed during the book. And, like, I was coming out of a really dark time in my life. I had recently lost my dad, and I was, like, going through a lot of stuff at the time. And I think a lot of what I was writing was how I how a grieving person wishes to be loved is how Alex loves Henry in this, like, very, like, unfailing, like, patient way where it's, like, I am going to push through and I am going to make you let me love you, but at the same time, I am also going to love you at your worst and, like, accept that there are things that I will never understand about, what like, the grief that you feel, but I am going to love every part of it anyway. Um... And, like, I think, I definitely think with um, I Kiss Char Wheeler, Chloe is a Capricorn, and I do blame that on the fact that my partner is a quadruple Capricorn, which is an absolutely demonic chart, by the I way. I don't even know. Could you, just for the person who does not know astrology well enough, what does it mean to be a quadruple well, Capricorn? Okay. So my partner is not, I, okay, so their Sun, Mercury, Venus, and Mars are all ca in Capricorn, which basically means... Um, that I get a calendar notification if we go to Taco Bell, you know? Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that is what it's like. And I am an Aquarius. I am like an extreme air sign, um, which means that I've never known where I was going for a day in my life. Um, and <laughs> so it's like definitely um, when I first, like, Capricorns have always been a very challenging sign for me. And Chloe in, in Shara is a Capricorn. And I really think it was because I was trying to understand Capricorns better. So I was like, let's live inside a Capricorn brain for a while. Um, and I, but Chloe and Shara, I think there's a lot. I, there's definitely, I gave them one kiss that was like lifted directly from something that happened to me in college. Um, like a, like a dramatic kiss over the console, I think is a great, moment and I did steal that from my own life but a lot of what I write is just fantasy um I am like a diehard romantic I've romanticized everything that's ever happened or even almost happened in my life um and in other people's lives <laughs> and um and so I think 
it's like everything is fantasy. Some things are inspired by reality, but will always be romanticized in like a fantastical, you know, amplified version of anything that is inspired from real life. I hate to bring up COVID, but I'm going to. I'm going to find a way. Well, I just think about it a little bit because I have found these moments of adapting, like romance. I'm not not talking about books, but like romantic moments adapting to the culture around it, meaning Zoom dates that go on for hours, Mm -hmm. long walks that actually are much more like reminiscent of Bridgerton era than they would have been 2019. (laughs) And I wonder to what extent you think we will see some of that reflected in romance literature um, or if you think we'll avoid it because why would anybody ever want to think about it? But like, you know, I Uh I just talk my friends and their experience finding romance and having it is a little altered in some ways right now. And Uh some of that seems to be sticking. Yeah. First of all, it's so funny that you would compare COVID dates to like Regency dates because that's so true. Like in um, in Pride and Prejudice, they're always like taking a turn about the room. And I remember the first time I read that being like, who does that? Like why? It's so awkward just like walk slowly next to each other around a room. And now that's like all we do. Um, right. <laughs> with, with, so, with, some, with some distance in between our mouths, you know? Yeah. Like. <laughs> And it's so sexy. Oh, my God. I saw your chin. Right. <laughs> um, um, I don't know. I mean, I think I think it's going to take us a couple years to really shake out how COVID is going to affect fiction long term moving forward. Um, at this point, I think most people I know, uh, most writers I know are like, we're just going to press on like it never happened in fiction, you know, um, because I do think it's sort of like, early for us to even begin to unpack like how like how would it affect a story how how do you even write about it we're still feeling the feelings we're feeling about it you know how do you write about it um and i i just think that um it's gonna take us some time i know for me i don't think i ever intend to like integrate it into my stories um because i like to live in a reality where it never happens because it's been bad. Um, I I don't know. I do think that we are going to see a continue of trends that are a result of COVID and romance, such as um, maybe long-distance relationships. Maybe, um, I feel I do feel like, a, a, a if not literally Regency, a Regency-flavored variety of yearning and horniness and unresolved sexual tension from across the room. Um, because if that's not what we've... I, literally, the last few years have just been having that like that feeling with life. Like, we are all Mr. Darcy sitting in a chair, suffering, and life is just a pretty girl in a gown turning slowly on the dance floor across the room. And we're like, oh, if only I could touch her. And that's like, that's, that's what this has felt like. Um, and so we're going to, I think, I think yearning, I, that's what, I think yearning is trending in 2022. <laughs> if I could do some trend <laughs> forecasting, I would say yearning is in. Uh, okay. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag yearning. Um, <laughs> This is so. I just want to ask one more question, and then I, then we'll go back to questions. But uh, not to put you on the spot, but you mentioned that you can sort of direct people to other books, and I'm going to open this up to beyond just books, but to media. Like when uh-huh. someone tells you, "I want to feel romantic," besides your own books, 
What mm. would you tell them to consume? This could even be music, whatever you want. Yeah. Like what's on your playlist of life for romance and discovering it again? This is going to sound probably very pretentious, but I think that everything is romance if you look at it the right way. And so my biggest recommendation would be to look at everything like it's romance. Every connection, every moment. I was coming out of my elevator at my hotel yesterday and I was walking through the lobby and this incredibly beautiful woman was walking up out of the lobby wearing like like a cherry patterned pajama set and then like a floor length with a train beaded dressing gown like carrying her bag of McDonald's and her slippers and we passed each other on the way that like these like beautiful ornate gold elevators and she's like oh my god you look amazing like and I was like oh my god so do you and she's like we're just gonna be gorgeous together today and I was like yeah we are that was not like romantic in the sense of like I was in love with her but it was romantic in the sense of like I was in love with that moment you know Mm -hmm. I was in love with, like, the vibe that we created for, like, two seconds in an elevator bank. Any music that makes you want to roll your windows down is romance. Um, Buying yourself nice pajamas is romance. I think um, finding a signature scent that reminds you of a a moment of life and, like, only using it. Okay, this is so weird, but, like, I have, like, two perfumes that I I used on book tours for my first two books. And I never use them anymore because they smell like those books to me. But I have them so I can always smell them and immediately be transported to the week that book came out and all of the feelings I felt the week that book came out and like all of like like the nerves and like the excitement and like that is romantic as as well, I don't know if I can say that. You can it's, say it. You can say it. It's romantic as fuck to me. Creating moments for yourself out of literally anything and then being able to transport yourself with those moments is romance. It's a beautiful answer. Thank you so much, Casey, for talking to us about romance. Thank you so much for having me on. I can't wait to hear this episode. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop, Amy Padula, and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. You can always send us a letter, we are an advice column, to loveletters at boston.com. We're online at loveletters.show. Our next season is about making big changes in romantic relationships. Stay tuned. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. Rx.